Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Continuing our series on history, my guest today is Eamon El Tamimi, who is a non-resident fellow at the New Lines Institute in Washington, DC, and also a PhD student at the University of Swansea in Wales. His research focuses on historical narratives in Islamic State propaganda, which he regularly comments on in the media, as well as on the Syrian and Iraqi conflicts. He recently wrote an essay for New Lines about a 13th century text written in Latin called Historia Arabum, or The History of the Arabs, a text Eamon has recently translated from its original Latin into Arabic. Eamon described the author of this text, Rodrigo Jiménez de Rada, Archbishop of Toledo in Spain, and what this text tells us about attitudes towards Arabs in the period. In the process, he questions notions and definitions of tolerance, both then and now. Eamon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Well, I'd like to start with an obvious question. Given your professional expertise and focus, that is on contemporary extremism and conflict, what led you to first discover and then translate such a long and difficult text written almost 900 years ago? Um, it actually, ultimately, it goes back to my childhood and actually to, um, uh, to my university education because my... Um, uh, actually, my uh, undergraduate degree was in uh, classics of Oriental studies, and the main bulk of that was uh, uh, was uh, actually Latin literature and Greek literature and uh, Roman history, ancient history. So, and I'd also studied Latin from uh, from my uh, younger years prior to university. So, I'd always had some um, familiarity. I'd long had some familiarity with Latin, and I. Even as I graduated university and uh, moved to working primarily on issues of contemporary extremism and groups like the Islamic State, I never entirely wanted to leave the world of Latin in particular behind the world of Latin language. Um, and actually, in my um, uh, one of the things I'd actually been interested in before, even before I went to university as well, actually, was um, Latin translations of the Quran. So actually, since the age of, uh, since I was 16, actually, I've owned a, a copy of a Latin translation of the Quran that was done in the um, end of the 17th century. Um, but actually, um, there were earlier translations before that, um, uh, one of them having been done by an individual called Mark of Toledo in the, um, in the, 13th, in the 13th century. And uh, I long wanted to get a copy of of that book. It wasn't. A, a, I long wanted to get a copy of that translation, and it wasn't um, available in my younger years. But subsequently, a critical edition of it was published in 2016. So I started perusing it actually, and uh, read the prologue. And there's the mention of this figure, Rodrigo, and how he'd commissioned this translation of the Quran um, into uh, into Latin. Uh, and of course, it was done with a, uh, his own reason for, for, for wanting it commissioned. But his own reason for wanting it to be done was that he wanted a, a basis for the refutation of Islam. Um, and, uh, the, and it was done out of hostility to Islam, although the translation itself 
which we could talk about if we wish. It, it, it is itself very interesting and somewhat generally devoid of, of polemics in how the translation was done. So really just one thing led to another. And then Rodrigo's works, I looked into them, having looked into this Latin translation of Quran, I discovered that he'd, he'd written a work called the Historia Arabum, which really can actually be called the first Western uh, book on Arab history. I thought, well, this text, this text looks interesting. I looked, and it, it's, uh, I think it merits a translation to Arabic, because uh, I'd also long been interested in the idea of translating Latin texts into Arabic and trying to find people interested in publishing them. Um, so I found a publisher in Jordan that was willing to take on that project um, in, uh, at the start of 2021. But that's a huge extra step. I can understand all the steps, you know, leading to the interest. And that is a really fascinating kind of long lived story. Um, but the translation is 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 difficult. Um, first of all, the languages aren't particularly close to each other. And second, you know, medieval Spanish Latin isn't very classical and you know there's 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 lots of difficulties with that and you you happen to have a very different professional life was there a particular question is there even perhaps a modern day question that you were seeking answers to when you chose to translate it um well I wanted to see what the text was about was it uh really just how 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 did this author conceive of Arab history and how did he portray Arabs and um you know, I had also, there is also, I think, this wider interest I'd, I'd had in how um, the medieval Christian world saw Islam uh, and Arabs. Um, mm. But this was really the first, this is one really stands out, in at least in, in, in the, the Christian Europe, as the first attempt to systematically write a book focused uh, and study focused on, on the Arabs and their history. Well, let's just actually pull back a little bit, as you say, like look at the medieval context in general and, and just put Rodrigo into that intellectual context. In particular, what I'd just like to talk about is the, is the translation movement that was happening in Europe in the 12th century. There was a, a huge amount of activity that was putting Arabic texts into Latin. And the same period sees the formation of the earliest European universities. And each of these had as a matter of course, a chair of Arabic, because they knew that there was a the, the thriving and active philosophical tradition that they could be tapped it, they could be tapping into. So books on logic, mathematics, metaphysics, natural sciences, lots and lots and lots of philosophy, many other topics were being translated into Latin. The of course, the lingua franca of Europe, which meant that they could be and they were disseminated widely through Christendom, which then triggered new centers of learning, new universities, even more translations from Arabic. So Rodrigo was really drawing on a large body of expertise already, wasn't he, in the form of his own education, which no doubt included Arabic sources and, and further expositions and commentaries of those texts in Latin. Uh, just for a bit of background, you probably don't know, <laughs> I know all of this from my own work in um, translating a 10th century text from Arabic, which was Al-Farabi's Enumeration of the Sciences. Now, this text, it hadn't been translated into English before, but it had very good translations into Latin in the 12th century. Uh, most notably, the ones I used um, were by Gerard of Cremona in Italy and also Dominicus Gundasalinus, um, who was also working in Toledo. Um, and their work 
was invaluable to me. They were very faithful to the original by Al-Farabi, uh, but they were two quite different translations. So they gave me, they gave me ideas of how to put some of the complex philosophy into, into a different grammatical form, you know, because Latin's that much closer to, to English than Arabic is. Um, but that's just an aside, sorry, to get back no, to No, no, it's, it's a legitimate one. It's a legitimate point to raise, actually, that Toledo was this translation centre, as it were, in the, uh, yeah. uh, both actually in Rodrigo's time and before it, uh, and this translation of the Quran into Latin produced at Toledo. Uh, you could say perhaps it's one of the uh, uh, major works of translation put out there in the, in, in the 13th century. What is, though, distinct... Or what is interesting, though, is that, as you actually mentioned, a lot of these works that were translated from Arabic into Latin, they concern subjects like philosophy, um, uh, sciences, mathematics. But actually, we don't we don't really we don't find one that's um, a translation of an Arabic historical work into uh, into Latin. I mean, among the various titles that are mentioned that are translated, we don't find one that's uh, say uh, that, that's a history book uh, and that's actually I think what makes Rodrigo's work Historia Arabum actually stand out from um uh yeah. from 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 the other work from 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 the tr from the wider translation movement yeah. um because there's no doubt he used Arabic source material for the uh or information coming from Arabic uh, historical sources uh for his Historia Arabum yeah but he went further I suppose than simply being informed and educated by the, by the Arabic sources that the translation movement pr um, produced, because he was also interested in the culture they were coming from, right? Because that that's what, um, well, we see it in, his, in commissioning the translation of the Quran or his own work on Historia Arabum. Um, and these things, of course, don't necessarily go together. You know, there are many places around the world today where the products of Western technology are welcomed, but the values of the culture they come from are rejected. So Rodrigo, in, in, in being interested in the source culture, was, was he unusual for his time? Um, yes, and it is remarkable at all even to, um, I think, uh, firstly, even to just use Arabic uh, uh, Arabic source material for, um, uh, for, uh, for his writing of history. There was really actually only one, there's really only one other parallel you could perhaps think of from that time, which uh, from the medieval time. But it wasn't actually in the West. It was what it, I'd called in the Latin East. The, by the Latin East, I mean the Crusader states that were established in the Levant. Um, uh, there was this author called William of Tyre um, who wrote, uh, he's mo best known for this cr Latin chronicle he did uh, about the history of the Crusades. But he also actually have mentions having used Arabic sources himself for writing a history uh from the time of muhammad up to i think it was around 1184 um and in that actually he named his most prominent source as a, an arabic chronicle written by a um by uh, a, a christian patriarch in alexandria um now unfortunately however that work uh which uh people often conventionally refer to as the deeds of eastern of eastern leaders 
that work actually is not extant and it's very difficult to know really um, the, um, uh, the scope of it. So what I mean by that, it's very difficult to tell if that work was specifically about Arabs or whether it was more a general Middle Eastern history that say would have covered things like the um, rise of the, uh, say the Seljuk Turks in, uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, with Rodrigo's work, I suppose there's, so there's an additional perhaps distinction with Rodrigo's work that it just seems as though the from the extent materials we have, it seems the information he was drawing on, yeah, was coming from the Arab, Arab Muslim uh, historical works and uh, not simply, say, relying on, uh, on, uh, on, on uh, an Arabic Christian source. So that's even more remarkable, I would say, um, especially given his hostility to Islam. Well, yes, there's the tension that I'm sensing. You know, you, you mentioned in the in the prologue to the to the Latin translation of the Quran that it was it was for very polemical reasons that the, the, it was commissioned for polemical reasons to refute Islam. But then you mentioned that maybe it was less polemical in its substance than what had come before. Yeah, but could then, I talk about that actually? Just a bit about what I mean by not the the substance of that translation not being so polemical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I well, firstly, the way the way that translation is done, it's very uh, it tends towards uh, literalism, and it it is very it's generally faithful to the original text. Um, and also, I think what you can tell from looking at the translation, because the Quran is not the easiest uh, text to translate. I mean, it does it does have. Um, uh, poses linguistic difficulties and obscurities, uh, even for the Muslim exegetical tra tradition. Um, but this is clearly someone who thought very carefully about uh, about the text and its meaning and tried to convey it, uh, 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 tried hard to understand it and convey it. Um, and you especially, I think, see that when you look at um, some of the more obscure terms in the Quran and the way Mark Toledo tried to render them. Um, I have one example that that's, that I remember quite well when I when I was looking through it was um, there's this word ababil which me in in one of the ending surahs al fil one of the late chapters of the Quran uh, which conventionally people understand that uh, conventionally it's it's interpreted as uh, flocks or groups of birds um, mm -hmm. but Rodrigo uh, but uh, Mark of Tilio actually he rendered it as birds of Babylon. Um, and I think he was thinking Ababil must be linked to Babel, so must mean birds of Babylon, which is, I mean, that's not, I mean, that's not someone who's, uh, that's not really the approach to someone, I think, who's trying to, say, distort the text deliberately or to portray Islam in as bad a light as possible. He's really thinking oh. hard about what it's trying to say. And uh, some people have suggested, actually, Ababil is what is, 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 uh, is uh, later in suggestions that Ababil means birds of Babylon. Yeah, I, I just wanted that as an aside by what I meant by the way that yeah. the text is generated. The, the translation that was done was devoid of polemical intent and the way it was done. But the intention yeah. of commissioning the project was polemical, yes. Well, then if we go to Historia Arabum from that context, I mean, um, you're saying that he's unusual for going back to directly to Arab sources. Uh, but at the same time, there is a marked hostility. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the text? I mean, it was part of a longer series, right? 
Yes, it wasn't this standalone work that was composed. Um, I think most scholars today actually recognize that um, it's uh, essentially what Rodrigo did. Um, the last major work of his life was to compose this, this what essentially is a um, five-part series uh, that can be called A History of Spain. And the bulk of it is what was called the Gothic history um because rodrigo like many others in in medieval spain they saw this continuity a supposed continuity between the christian kingdoms that arose out of the muslim conquest and the prior kingdom of the visigoths who ruled spain before the islamic conquest um so that's the main work that he composed and the, it seems the final edition or uh, uh, of that was done around 1243 uh, but then he composed these supplement works, which essentially tried to help the uh, essentially help intended to help the reader understand more how foreign peoples contributed to the history of Spain. So he the second work is the history of the Romans, uh, and that's actually only that's only a prologue and ten chapters long. And then he does the history of um, Huns, Vandals, Alans, Suevi, and Silingi. And when I when I was doing my article for the New Lines, I I simplified it a bit because the Huns didn't actually invade Spain, but I, Rodrigo I think mentions them because of their role in the displacement of so-called barbarian tribes in the in the fifth century, and including pe peoples who migrated to Spain, like the Vandals, Alans, and Suevi, and all of those were eventually displaced by the Visigoths, and then. He does uh, the history of the Ostrogoths, and that's a very, very tangential connection. It, he only does it because there was just this brief period where the Ostrogoths, who ruled out of Italy um, uh, briefly, they under Theodoric the Great, the, the territories of the Visigoths in Spain were united under one entity. Uh, but then finally is the Historia Arabum, which is actually much, much longer than uh, any of the other supplementary books that Rodrigo composed. It's actually a prologue and 49 chapters long, whereas say something, as I mentioned, the Roman, the history of the Romans, that was only just a prologue and 10 chapters. Oh, history of the Hunter was a prologue and 16 chapters, and the oh, Ostrogoths yeah. was just a he prologue was... and six chapters. So it's it's really, it's such, these historic albums length is really such that you can almost just consider a standalone work even as you recognize it as part of the bigger history of Spain project. Yes, so he was very, very interested in the Arabic period of Spain. Um, and now we get to the heart of it all then, just how do the Arabs emerge from Rodrigo's telling of their history? Well, given the opening, you would only think, you would think that really it's just a never, it's a non-ending story of uh, destruction and calamity. I mean, to be clear, actually, Rodrigo, in, in that impression he gives in the prologue, I mean, it's not unique it's not as though he necessarily thinks the Arabs are uniquely evil in, in, in the destruction they bring, uh, or that they have the monopoly on the destruction that was brought to Spain. Uh, I mean, similarly, for instance, he uh, sees the Romans as having brought what he calls judgments of death on Spain. Uh, and certainly when he writes, say, the history of the Romans, for instance, it's not about, oh, the Romans were so great and they brought civilization to Spain. No, it's actually he focuses very heavily on in his history of the Romans uh, on um, the massacres and warfare that occurred between, say, the Romans and the Carthaginians in Spain. Um, 
the conquests of Spain by by, uh, by the Romans and, and the destruction that brought. So, I mean, just to be clear, so the, the, the impression given in the prologue of the, for the history of the Arabs, it is, it is one of a story of calamities and destruction. Okay. Uh, but I think that's part of a, also, to an extent, that's part of Rodrigo's wider view of history, is, which is not an entirely illegitimate one, that history is full of massacres and, and warfare and destruction and, and a lot of human suffering. Yes. Um, but given even within the Historia Arabum with that negative impression uh, that comes from the prologue and which he reinforces by uh, how he says he's going to outline the biography of Muhammad uh, to uncover the cunning and savagery of that people and people should be aware of these false stories Muhammad concocted and this poison bearing pest, uh, pest pestilence bearing poison he put in the minds of lustful souls there's that negative impression but then as time goes on as it goes on with the book it becomes more and more objective in general such that you can really say there's an inconsistency between the prologue and the wide much of the bulk of the content of this story arabic uh so yeah again we've got that tension coming up i mean i i going back to his view of the history and, and, and politics one thing that you make clear in the essay is that he seems to see it as a zero-sum game the, the human politics and i'll quote from the prologue as to why i i say that he says just as from the beginning they that's the muslims oppressed the christian inhabitants under the burden of tribute so also they now live in a custom servitude under tribute following the restoration of the fortifications to the christian leaders so in in that kind of sense that somebody's in charge and somebody's oppressed, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what coexistence in medieval Spain might look like here. Yes. I mean, what I what should actually be made clear from the context of, of this also is that Rodrigo, um, uh, Rodrigo wasn't just uh, writing history and divorced from the worldly affairs of Spain. He was very actively involved in it during the peak of his career and specifically he was involved in crusader campaigns in iberia against uh against uh the the muslim powers so specifically uh in particular against the almohad caliphate that was ruling much of southern spain at, at the time and rodrigo himself participated in um a battle in uh, uh in the year 1212 alongside alfonso the eighth of uh, of castile uh, what's called the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, which was actually a decisive defeat against uh, the Almohads. And so important did Rodrigo see that battle that in that same prologue from which you quoted, he uh, he mentions that from the time of that battle, the, the he, uh, to quote, the sword of the Arabs has been blunted and the Gothic strength has been restored. restored. The Gothic strength, of course, referring to Christian power. Hmm. Um, I think that... Uh, it's, it's a fair interpretation to argue that Rodrigo himself, given his career and given, I think, his wider negative portrait um, of uh, Arabs and Muslims, that I think in the end, you could, you could reasonably argue that his goal, that he wanted to see an end of Muslim sovereignty in Spain. So Muslims mm -hmm. controlling and administering territory in Spain. It's fair enough to say he wanted to see an end to that. But from that same excerpt you quoted, um, it's also clear that uh, he could, yes, he could want to see an end of Muslim sovereignty, but he was also perhaps be 
uh, happy to quote unquote tolerate the Muslims in Spain, provided mm-hmm. essentially uh, provided that they are sent that they are subject to Christian power uh, yeah. and that they're in a subordinate status and paying tribute to the Christian uh, Christian yeah. rulers. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, he, he specifically writes about Spanish Arabs, right? He sees them as an integral part of Spain. Yes, not only that, he uses another interesting formation at the very end of the work, the Vandal Arabs, which does oh, not yeah. mean causing destruction, but is coming from an etymology a suppose, an etymology for Al-Andalus that supposedly redi- derives from the term, uh, from, from the name Wandalia, so the realm of the Vandals, given that they settled, that, that tribe settled in parts of southern, in, in parts of Spain during the fifth century. So by using that term, it, it essentially, you can argue that it, it's, it's recognized a, a distinction between them, uh, the Arabs of, of Spain and say Arabs of the Middle East or say the Berbers of North Africa and elsewhere too, there, there's this distinction raised between, uh, uh, regarding say the Berbers and the Arabs, it's not all just one big morass of Saracens or Hagarines and uh, as he's referring to some of these common terms that were used in, in medieval times for, for the general mass of Muslims. Um, uh, no, he, he clearly does, I think, see distinctions. Um, but yeah, he, I, I would say this is an example of where you could see um, oppression and coexistence being together at the same time. Uh, yes. Yeah, because as you noted, just as they oppressed the Christians from the beginning, now they're the ones who have to pay tribute to us. And um, uh, not only that, but before that also, they mentioned the Battle of Las Navas to Tlaus and how Rodrigo saw that as a turning point. He, he also mentions how it opened the way of revenge for the Christians. So um, it's almost retaliation for oppression. <laughs> Well, and it's also making me think about something else, and this might be a terrible analogy, you can tell me, but um, if if you think about Southern Spain under first Arab rule, it might have felt to the Christians a little bit like colonialism did in the 19th and 20th centuries, in that the rulers might be hated, the sense of being a second-class citizen hugely resented, but at the very same time, the dominant culture could be admired for its superior thought and technology, um, which, of course, the Latin translation movement showed how admired they were. But just the, the amount of resources poured into the translation of Arabic text tells us that. Can you recognize anything in that analogy? You know, actually, that's a, that's one that I didn't really think of in depth. But, you, uh, but I think it's actually quite a good one. Uh, because actually also among some of the other Latin works that I've translated into English, maybe at some point do an Arabic translation in the future, but um, uh, scholars actually have collected uh, writings uh, of uh, 9th century Spain in particular. Uh, uh, They're compiled under what's called the Corpus of Mozarabic Writings. Uh, Mozarab is a common term that's used to refer to Christians living under uh, uh, Muslim rule in Iberia during this period and beyond. Um, but it can also be misleading. I mean, there were there were Christians who adopted Arabic language and culture and uh, uh, fully participated without converting to Islam. Um, and no doubt they could perhaps be seen as important in contributing to... Uh, say, later translation and move, movement that arose. 
Um, on the other hand, though, from the extent what we call most Arabic writings from this ninth century, uh, the Christians who are writing and they're writing in Latin, they're very much the opposite of that, in that they they actually strongly urge against Christians not to adopt the Arabic culture and mm. uh, language. Uh, for instance, one of the writers in that collection, Alvaro of uh, Alvaro of Cordoba, um, he's actually well known. He wrote this uh, this long essay called Indiculus Luminosus, which tries to, tries to claim Islam is the Antichrist. Um, mm. And at the end of it, he actually sees he sees the prevalent use of Arabic language as one of the signs of the beast <laughs> of Revelation. And he, he laments how La La he, he says, "Oh, Latin's been forgotten," and we now see these Christians writing in Chaldean, uh, in Chaldean writing, Chaldeans, he's using that as a term for Arabs. Um, um, uh, uh, I think he's, he's trying to link them, I think, to, to Babylonians in, 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 in biblical literature. Um, but yeah, this is, this, is, um, uh, this is interesting that, yeah, many Christians may have perhaps resented the second class status, and you also see that in those same writings. Uh, but nonetheless, I think uh, there was also participation in the system. There was uh, adoption of Arabic language and culture and writing. Um, and the fact that you see some Christians complaining against, against that and insisting on retaining a Latin identity and culture, I think very much does speak to uh, 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 a high degree of Arabization, as it were. Even though, say, for someone like Rodrigo, he wouldn't have considered these Mozarabs, who actually many of them retained a distinct identity in Toledo, uh, even after it came under Christian rule, so distinct from other Iberian Christians. He wouldn't have really actually seen them as Arabs. Um, he actually uses at one point in the Gothic history another term for them. He calls them, he calls them mixed Arabs, uh, but he doesn't mean Arab by racial descent. He just means that they lived among the Arabs and adopted aspects of Arab culture, but he doesn't actually... As you can see from his story, Arabim, he doesn't see most Arabs as Arabs. He actually just really applies that to Arab Muslims. So uh, you're talking about a lot of um, cultural sharing and even assimilation. Um, and I wondered if we could, I mean, and we see this in, in a lot of different ways. There's also throughout the history of mathematics, you know, you look at the, the, the number system in southern Spain over these centuries, and you see them really <laughs> kind of wandering around before they settle on the, on the Latin number system. We've got something called Gothic, which is something halfway between Arabic and what we end up with in the modern number system, which we call Arabic, but they're not Arabic. Um, <laughs> and and you, you see all of this kind of happen, happening between the um, different cultures, the, the Arabs, the Muslim Arabs, and then the European Christians. Um, you, you see it in the business arrangements, you know, in, in, and sharing and developing new systems and thoughts. So there was, there was definitely an element of, of intellectual sharing and, um, um, and debate and discussion that was very productive. Um, so what do you think? I mean, I suppose gesturing to what you said about, about oppression and coexistence existing side by side, what does all of this have to say about tolerance at the time? Really, the tolerance, I think, it has to be understood uh, as a relative concept. Um, and there's also this other common term that's used for the medieval Spain uh, describing the arrangements that were in place, uh, convivencia, mm -hmm. uh, living together, right? And it's not... 
it's not as as scholars understand it it's it's really not this conception that everyone lived in harmony and uh uh, uh respected each other's religion and and uh uh got uh, necessarily all got along it's it's more like um accepting the existence of these other communities whether you like them or not and finding some way of living with them um but that could also mean doesn't mean necessarily equal rights before the law it could that effectively means i think one group uh exerting its authority over the others so whether say in christian spain uh in rodrigo's time it's essentially christian authority over uh muslims and jews um and you see that actually effectively in rodrigo's interactions with say for example the the Jewish community of Toledo. I mean, the Catholic, central Catholic leadership, I think, wants to impose some harsher measures on the Jewish community and say in terms of dress and in payment of uh, tithes. Um, but Rodrigo actually effectively he came up with effectively a, a poll tax system uh, uh, for the Jewish community of Toledo uh, that uh, can be seen as analogous to the jizya or a poll tax system that Muslims imposed on Jews and Christians under their uh, living under their rule, um, and so it's really that relative sense in which tolerance has to be understood. And I, I actually want to speak. I want. I want to speak up in defense of of scholarship. I think because I think I think that of uh, uh, particularly modern scholarship. I think because I think uh, it's it's not fair to characterize somehow modern scholarship as all being blind by supposed political correctness and thinking that. Al Andalus was this uh, multicultural equal rights for all par paradise for people. No, uh, I think the scholarship correctly understands it to be a relative meaning of tolerance and uh, and not the sense of tolerance as we'd understand it today. Well, I do wonder whether we could ref reflect a bit on on what all of this means for us today, um, because and, and in terms of, of difference, I think a key difference uh, between now and what you've described as Rodrigo's attitude is a certain form of cultural respect. So in medieval Arab Spain, a Christian might be treated like a second-class citizen in many ways, legally, economically, you know, through, through the jizya or, or socially as well. And there might be real animosity about all of that. Um, and conversely, an, an Arab under Christian rule would, or Jew, as you've just, as you've just described, paying a poll tax. Um, and there might be, yeah, injustice around that, but there was, there, there remained a core respect for the Muslim culture that gave rise to the Muslim rulers seen in the translations and the attention to their history and philosophy like the Historia Arabum. Um, whereas today in the West, Muslims aren't officially treated as second-class citizens. And by that, I mean, they don't pay extra taxes and they don't have different laws applied to them. But I think the ideas of Islam aren't so widely respected or valued. Is that a fair characterization, do you think? Um, but on the other hand, though, it's one thing to say that the Christians uh, of the medieval times respected uh, Arabic uh, outputs of science and philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and But um, on the other hand, there wasn't really respect for, there wasn't, in general, I say this in general, there wasn't really respect for, for Islam as a religion. I think you mm. do see that in Rodrigo's work. On the other hand, though, I mean, uh, I, Rodrigo, I think, stood out from some of the other 
medieval writers that he didn't see Islam as this Christian heresy. Um, he saw it as a false religion and it's a false sect. Uh, he commonly uses the word sect in describe in, in the historic Arabum when he's describing um, uh, when he's referring to Islam to say the sect of Muhammad and uh, uh, subjugated to the sect of Muhammad and referring to some of the early Muslim conquests in, in, uh, in Egypt, for example. But um, no, so he is hostile to Islam. Um, and I suppose there is that parallel with today. Um, um, so there might have been respect for, for again, scientific and mathematical output, but uh, and contribution to knowledge in that regard, but not not necessarily respect for Islam. Um, sometimes yeah. though, you did find. Sometimes though, I do have to mention this. You do find that some medieval Christian authors to try to prove uh, uh, to prove uh, truth of Christianity as they saw it. Uh, they would sometimes leap on the Quran and highlight bits where Islam speaks positively about Jesus, for instance, or a call to greater status to the Virgin Mary. Um, and there was even this one author of uh, from the Latin East, actually, William of Tripoli. Uh, he actually uh, he he, uh, he he leaped on that, and actually, apparently, he tried to use that as a conversion strategy aimed at Muslims, highlight the common ground between Islam and Christianity and the respect accorded, say, for instance, to the Virgin Mary, and then correct Islam's errors about uh, about the status of Jesus in hope of trying to bring over the Muslims to Christianity. Uh, uh, that was one example I've come across. Uh, but you no, know, today, uh, so actually, in a way, but to, to go back to the point of be uh, in short, I, I, uh, you could see a parallel still between hostility to Islam today and hostility to Islam back in those times. I think it's still there. Uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, these things are tricky to navigate, aren't they? Because these definitions and these concepts, coexistence, tolerance, they're so dependent on cultural attitudes and beliefs. It's it's very tricky to write about from from a culture that's so far removed in in time and attitude. I mean, is there anything more you can say, do you think, about tolerance to Muslims, bearing in mind what you've said about hostility to their ideas, um, yet attention to their culture? What, how do you think Rodrigo saw tolerance to Muslims? He saw it in terms of, I think, a second-class a, a second class status. Um, at the same time, as you can see in uh, so overall, he see he he wants them, I think, in a second class dimmy like status towards Christian authorities. But uh, I think you see with the historian as it becomes more objective. Uh, you see, actually, uh, by objective, you see, I mean, you see even, say, words of praise that are given to various Muslim rulers of, of Al-Andalus that really is inconsistent with the portrayal he initially gave in the prologue of uh, 532 years and beyond of destruction. Um, for instance, I mean, he speaks of uh, one of uh, uh, Hisham I as governing the whole land with justice. He mentions Al-Hakam the first, one of the, the Umayyad emirs in Cordoba, as having um, uh, he personally judged the poor. That's the literal way the phrase is rendered. But I think what he means when you compare with Arabic source materials that he passed judgments favorable to, towards the poor, and he also worked to keep the the criminals and delinquent people in check. 
you even say Yusuf bin Tashfin, who was the Almoravid king who destroyed the Taifa kingdoms and halted the Christian advances in Al-Andalus in uh, a battle, uh, the Battle of Zalaka, which is still commemorated by uh, jihadist groups today. Actually, Rodrigo says about Yusuf bin Tashfin that he ruled, uh, he preserved justice for all. Um, so even though he has a negative view of Islam as a whole, and I think of Muslims as a whole, uh, it wouldn't have prevented him from uh, wrecking, uh, uh, preventing him of, from seeing in, say, positive portrayals of Muslim rulers in source material uh, and preventing him from believing in those portrayals uh, and therefore uh, reproducing them in his own work. You see, as I did mention in the article discussing it, that one argument against um, one of the arguments in the tolerance debate is, well, Rodrigo might offer words of praise for Muslim rulers, but that's just the result of him uncritically copying um, uh, his Arabic source material. But I think it's fair to say, in, uh, in, in contrast, in reply to that, is that yes, he might be copying, he might be, uh, but why? Uh, why suppose that he doesn't believe that that the portrayal uh, in his source material is true? Is in so if if he writes something in praise of one of the rulers, and he's just drawing that from Arabic source material, what, should we suppose that he doesn't believe that? I think that's not. I don't think that's a reasonable argument to make. Uh, no, I think, I, I think he genuinely believes the praise he offers for for, for these. Uh, uh, he genuinely believes those words of praise he offers for those Muslim rulers. So do you think that you might understand this text in a particular way because of your work on contemporary intolerance? Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't draw the link with jihadism when I was, when I, when I was uh, or jihadist portrayals of, 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 of Al-Andalus and Andalusian history when I, when I was looking at this work. Uh, I did, though, have in mind issues of, say, some contemporary context. I mean, I, I mentioned it in passing in the end, right, with the... Um, uh, um, uh, places where coexistence might be held up uh, or put on display, but it 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 it's really um, uh, it it shouldn't be uh, obscure uh, mm -hmm. the reality of the oppression, say that does exist. For instance, in the con the Israeli-Palestinian context that I was thinking of uh, were instances, I think, where say Israeli settlers uh, or uh, might uh, uphold uh, examples of where they interact on day-to-day -day basis with Palestinians. Um, and they might do activities together. They might employ Palestinians for certain functions. But it, it doesn't, I think, change the old, the bigger picture of the arrangement that's in the occupied West Bank, which is that it's a uh, it's a second class, uh, it's overall second class uh, status for Palestinians as a whole living in that territory, even if they do. Uh, have economic and uh, social interactions with with the Israeli settlers. That was really what I had in mind when I was when I was uh, uh, thinking of those present day analogies. Uh, those between yeah. coexistence and oppression. Exactly, the the, mm. the tension, and they can be together at the same time. So. Mm. Mm. Well, just to finish up, I'd like to ask what's in the future for you. Would it be more ISIS, more medieval Latin, or both? Oh, I'm translating right now, actually. Well, I think it'll be both. I'm translating right now, though, uh, the Gothic history of Rodrigo uh, into oh, English. Uh, so uh, over a third of the way through that right now. And 
<laughs> oh, so you are retaining your commitment to Latin sources. Oh yeah, I'm not good. I'm not giving up on that. It's uh, uh, I think it'd be a great shame if I just went entirely over and just did, focused only on one thing. I, I, I like to I maintain about maintain a variety of interests. <laughs> well, good luck with that translation. It sounds epic. And um, Aim and Altamimi, thank you very much. You're very welcome. <laughs> You can buy Eamon's Arabic translation of Historia, Historia Arabum, Tarikh al-Arab, from Dar Khatut in Jordan or online. And an English translation is currently under preparation, available soon. Eamon tweets at AJLTamimi. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.